0: This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go. Hello. Welcome to a very special episode of Fintech Takes. My name is Alex Johnson, and my guest today is Sarah Kuchansky. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Honestly, it's a huge honor. I've um, <laughs> I feel very privileged to have been invited.
0: No, no, not at all. It's my honor to have you. And um, as I think you'll make clear in a second, I couldn't think of a better person to do this particular podcast with. So to start with, if you could give a little bit of background for listeners on who you are, your background in the industry, that would be great.
1: Of course, yeah. Um, so I have been working in fintech for I think it's over ten years now, which is um, slightly crazy. Um, and really ages.
0: That's that. a long time in fintech, yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I started out working for a fintech. Uh, my background has always been research, analysis, insights. So I've worked on the side with product teams, with marketing teams, doing product market fit, competitor analysis, market scanning, all that kind of good stuff. Um, and then I moved from working in a company to working. For companies that look at fintechs, so did some time at Business Insider Intelligence, running their fintech team, and then I was at a company called Eleven FS for, for three years. I was their head of competitor strategy. And they're a fintech-specific consultancy. So had a great time there. Did a lot of podcasts. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully, I remember how it's done. And then more recently, I've gone freelance. So um, I work myself as a fintech strategist. I work with a huge range of clients banks, consultancies, startups, some fintech, some financial services, some e-commerce. Um, I like variety. Uh, and on the side, I do a bit of writing for people like Forbes as well. So um, I'm quite hard to get away from, actually. You can find myself in a lot of places
0: quite hard to get away from is, uh, something I resonate with very much because I, uh, the amount of content I put out, I honestly feel bad sometimes where I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have like one more thing to say. So I very much feel you on that. Uh, for everyone listening, I will make sure to share when we post this episode, Sarah's Twitter handle and other contact information. So make sure to get in touch with Sarah if you have consulting things that you'd like to talk to her about. But we today are going to get into a topic that uh, Sarah, I think you and I, we share sort of a research background analysis sort of background. And I think that a topic I'm really interested in getting into and that I know you've been looking at as well is consolidation, right? And I think that It's not surprising to anyone who's listening that we are probably going into a period of significant consolidation and contraction within the fintech space. And I think that's largely just driven by the sort of changing macro environment. We've sort of snapped back from boom years over the last three to five years in terms of funding going into fintech and new founders creating companies and just the footprint of fintech expanding dramatically to a period of contraction where due to high interest rates and sort of larger macroeconomic concerns the amount of money going into fintech has slowed. It hasn't stopped, but it's certainly slowed and that's I think going to leave quite a few fintech companies in a position where they're going to have to make some hard choices. And the benefits for others in the ecosystem is that if you have some dry powder and potential interest in acquiring a fintech company, whether it's for its technology or its product or its customer base, or even just the team itself, now's a good time to go shopping. And so I what I wanted to do, Sarah, is to kind of bounce around some different areas within the sort of MA landscape within fintech and just sort of talk it out and get your perspective. Does that sound good?
1: Yeah, that sounds great.
0: Okay. And as I sent you a message on last night, I was hoping to frame this discussion using a game show that I really like, Jeopardy, and was amused to learn that across the pond, that's not exactly a game show that you're familiar with.
1: I don't know if it's just me or if it's us generally, but I, when you sent me the, the notes back and, and, and I said, we're going to take a Jeopardy format, I panicked. I like, what, <laughs> what is Jeopardy? And, and I asked my partner and he was like, oh, I, I think it's a game show. And I was like, oh, goodness me. Um, but then the time I had dedicated, you know, I set aside some time this afternoon to do some research, because that's my background. I didn't do any research on FinTech m and I did a lot of research on Jeopardy. <laughs> I have yet to see any. So that's what I'm going to do after this. It's like five o'clock in the evening here. So I'm after this, I'm going to go and I'm going to find some old episodes on YouTube and find out what it's all about.
0: Excellent. Okay. Well, so um, this is great. And I will put your mind at ease and tell you that I won't make you answer any of these questions in the form of a question. We won't do that. There won't be any bidding. uh, And I certainly won't be paying out any dollar prizes, I'm sorry to say. However, I did want to organize our discussion in sort of a Jeopardy, Double Jeopardy, Final Jeopardy round. And so that's what we're going to do. So in my best Jeopardy voice, this is fintech M&A Jeopardy. Okay, so um, when you watch an episode, that'll become clear what I'm talking about. Our first uh, Jeopardy round is going to be based around the fintech landscape. And what I want to do is hop through some different areas within the fintech space that might be kind of ripe for consolidation and uh, acquisition and just get your thoughts on some of these different areas. So our categories are buy now, pay later, neobanks, Banking as a Service, Verticalized Fintech, Boring Back Office Infrastructure, Mortgage and prop tech, and Wealth and Investing. Sarah, as the guest on today's podcast, you have command of the board, so please make a selection.
1: Okay, so I think we should start with Banking as a Service because it was like one of the hottest areas of fintech over the last couple of years. It's something that, I mean, I'm guilty of it as well. I write about it a lot because it gets a lot of attention. But I think one thing just to point out is that here in Europe, we have a slightly different definition of banking as a service. And this is one of the reasons that I think the whole area is ripe for consolidation, because banking as a service can mean so many different things to so many different people. And so many companies looking for VC funding and money funding, really, in the last few years said, oh, yeah, we're banking as a service, we're banking as a service. So if you just type that into to Google you'd find hundreds and hundreds of companies. So that's one reason why I think it's ready for consolidation because there there are so many companies in the space mm-hmm. and it's just a really crowded market. I think also we're going to see on both sides of the pond regulators looking really hard at it, which is going to put some pressure on some companies because when regulators look hard, you kind of know there's something coming and mm-hmm keeping up with any kind of new regulation or, or new kind of forms of compliance is really resource intensive. Even if you're the biggest provider in the world, you're still going to have to dedicate a significant chunk of time, money, people to keeping up.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's a great initial pick. Um, it's a space I've written about a lot as well. And I think one thing that's kind of struck me, and I'd be curious for the sort of European equivalent to this, because I don't, I don't know the European banking as a service market nearly as well. But in the States, one of the things that we, I think, are going to struggle with over the next couple of years is that there's a category of banking as a service providers that are these sort of middleware platforms, right? So this is uh, Treasury Prime and Synctera and Unit and Bond and Synapse and companies like that. Uh, Stripe even does a little bit of this. And, um What's interesting to me about those platforms in particular is that they really exist to sort of be market makers, right, between banks that want to supply their charter and their sort of other banking services, and then the um, fintechs or brands that are doing embedded finance on the other side, right? And one thing that I think is really interesting about that is that when this concept of banking as a service middleware first sort of emerged, it was during these like boom times where like every company is going to be a fintech company. You know, neobanks and B2C fintech makes a ton of sense. Every community bank is going to want to get into banking as a service because look how profitable it is for these small community banks under $10 billion. And then what happened is every one of those things, I think, slowed down, right? Everyone is still pretty bullish on embedded finance, maybe more so than I am. But like, we're going to, I think, maybe run into slowdown there. Neo banks and sort of consumer-facing fintech companies have sort of ground to a halt, honestly. Like, that's not a category that VCs are wild about anymore. And then to your point, regulators have kind of come in and said, yeah, I know that banking as a service is a really profitable area for you community banks, but we have concerns about Bank Secrecy Act and KYC and AML and just the controls that you're putting in place and how you're managing these partners. And so I think we're going to see a lot of sort of regulatory enforced slowdown on the banking side. And so both on a supply side and a demand side, I think the picture is a lot less rosy for these platforms than it used to be. And a question I kind of constantly ask myself is, how many of these platforms do we really need in the market and how many is too many?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And and, and there is a certain amount um, of of similarity with the way it works in Europe. Just the really easy way to explain it is that most of the providers... BAS providers in Europe do not have banking licenses, nor do they need them. You have to Uh be regulated in order to offer any kind of financial services. So the third parties, the fintechs have to be regulated. But that's classically done on a much lighter regime, like an electronic money license or a payments provider. And then the people supplying them with services are typically not banks either. So whereas in the US, I think you have like a three party model, you have, you know, you, you cross rivers at the back. Then you have your middle platform, middleware platforms that you mentioned, you know, the huge swathe of them. And then, you know, the, the whoever is chime at the front. In Europe, it tends to be much more of a two party model. And that bank license piece is, mm. is less common. That said, we've got a couple of vast providers that have actually just got licensed um, in Europe in the last couple of weeks, Griffin has one, So that's going to be interesting. But I completely agree that the middle layer is crowded. It's just overcrowded. It just is. And the problem I think Think that they're going to face is that customers, would-be customers, are totally overwhelmed. They have no idea who to choose. And part of the problem is that you often can't get everything from just one of those middleware players. You've got to go to a few, yeah. or the middleware player is doing a lot of orchestration behind finding five or six different people to do all the things you need mm-hmm. to do to offer your end product. And I think what that's going to result in is kind of a horizontal spread um, for those middle players. They're going to be going out and picking up people you know what I mean? Um, yes, yes. Gonna, the m
0: a equivalent of that, yes. yes.
1: Exactly. They're going to be looking for acquisition. To, I think the biggest middleware platforms are going to do acquisition themselves. I think they're mm. going to be looking to expand their product and service offering so they become, A, a more holistic provider, which is more attractive to their own customers. B, mm-hmm. obviously, they're cleaning up the market, getting rid of some competition. And C, they're kind of adding those extra revenue streams on. Um, I think we've seen like Marketa starting to do that, that you know, with their recent acquisition, of course. Mm-hmm. So I think... That's going to be really interesting to see on that middle layer is who has the resources and kind of the strategic plan in place to go out and acquire other bits of the chain to make themselves more compelling and more appealing to those end customers who, as you said, they're getting fewer and and far between. One thing that's interesting in Europe is we've just seen um, Vidino, which is a licensed banking as a service player, have a a major stake in it taken by a bank, British bank NatWest. Mm. Um, and this is a really another interesting dynamic i think in the bad space particularly talking about the consolidation piece, is those big banks have been largely absent. banks have been largely absent in the bad space in europe and i think as the banks move in they're obviously going to prove slightly more appealing like if somebody says it's all right we've got licensed nat west bank behind us you're going to go as a would-be buyer oh great <laughs> we'll go for them then and that further pushes those kind of uh, you know, those, those other providers that make, you know, into a corner, really. But also having that big bank behind you really helps the regulation piece, right? NatWest is a big established bank. It's not a small community bank. It knows compliance, it can do compliance. And it's got a lot of resources dedicated to <laughs> compliance. So, you know, it will help with that. Whereas I think, you know, particularly in the US, a lot of those smaller banks that have really made money out of it, they've never had to deal with this level of compliance before, which is why they're struggling.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I'm glad you mentioned the bank's role in this because I also see a potential for them to sort of eat up the stack, right? Because a lot of the value of these bass middleware providers from my perspective is, hey, you don't want to work with a bank directly, right? Like that would be insane. Like this tiny community bank, like you don't want to talk to them. You don't want to have to like integrate with their tech stack. Like you don't want to have to just deal with them like on a day-to-day basis. So we'll take a lot of that off of your shoulders, some BAS platforms have sort of different philosophies around how much they take off and then how much they sort of leave you to do with the bank directly. And I've written about that in my opinion on that before. But I do think that an obvious avenue of potential consolidation here is some of the more ambitious and well-funded banking as a service banks just going – well, why don't we just get better at the stuff that these platforms do? Like we could do, we could have a better tech platform for this. We could have more of an API focused platform for them to plug into. We can build sort of better like business development uh functions so we can work better with these fintech companies and make us less painful to deal with, you know, on and on and on. And you do see I think some of that happening. There are Larger banking as a service banks like Cross River that are like raising money and trying to like basically invest that in technology and becoming more of that platform provider. And then you see sort of newer banks to the space where someone comes in and buys a bank charter or starts a bank with the intention of turning it into sort of a tech first Banking as a service bank. So that's like Column, or I think uh, Jackie Reese, formerly of Squares, doing something kind of similar with the bank that she acquired. So those are, I think, other avenues that are just going to put more pressure on this banking as a service space as well.
1: Yeah. Just something that always blows my mind is the idea of acquiring a bank. Like in Europe, that would be. Is that funny? Yeah. I mean, there are some places, like <laughs> for example, in Italy, Italy has a much, much more fragmented banking system. There are many, many more players, but like, mm-hmm. and we'll get onto this maybe, but the idea of just acquiring a bank for a license. <laughs> The way I know it's not that common in the U.S., but it happens a hell of a lot more than it does over here. Put it that way.
0: (laughs) Well, we have we have people in the U.S. who buy banks out of their own pockets, which blows my mind. Like (laughs) I'm not one who has the capital to do that, but like the fact that anyone in the U.S. can be like, "Yeah, I'm sort of thinking about buying this community bank," you know, and it's like, "Whoa, okay, like sure," you know. So it's it is a very strange thing, and I'm glad you brought that up because that does speak to some of the sort of differences that make. I think the US market in particular kind of tricky to evaluate from a banking as a service perspective because there is a lot of supply out there potentially. Yeah. Should we jump to another category? Yeah, sure. Okay. I think you won that round. So I'm going to let you pick again. What's another category that you'd like to (laughs) talk about?
1: I didn't know there were points at stake. Uh, Well,
0: I'm sort of keeping track informally. And uh, if I'm doing that, you'll win every round. But please go ahead and pick again.
1: (laughs) Okay. Shall we do buy now, pay later? Because it's another super hot topic. I think about buy, now pay later as well as it's all over the media. And like, I mean, like the consumer press, like I don't mean like, you know, the things we you and I sit down and read, um, <laughs> right? Or a lot of people do read. But do you know what I mean? It's in the big national broadsheets over here. And I think it's another really crowded market, a lot of people piled into this space. And exactly to your point, I think the macroeconomic conditions are really going to hurt this space as well. Because, When money was cheap, these companies had no problem kind of acquiring capital to allow them to either lend or or do the, you know, cover the losses of installment payments. People, Mm -hmm. individuals had a lot more money kind of lying around so that it was easier for them to make the repayments. So Mm -hmm. the market's crowded. Their business model is really under pressure. And again, the regulators are involved. (laughs) Yeah. Particularly here in the UK, we have um, the FCA, um, which is one of our regulators here. We have we Mm -hmm. have three major financial regulators, but the FCA actually has a mandate to ensure consumer fairness, and Mm. you know that companies are putting consumers' financial well-being first, and they are not happy with <laughs> by-night later providers. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a cheat, this one, because we've already certainly started to see some significant acquisitions in this space, particularly mm-hmm. the, you know, afterpay being acquired. But I think it's going to continue. There's no way that the number of providers that are out there can, A, can continue, you know, uh, in this economic environment, but B, again, to the point, you know, similar to the bus providers, I don't know which one to use. There are 17 of them on this checkout page. Like, how do I know mm-hmm. which which one is for me and which one's right? So, yeah, I think that's going to be across the board. I don't think that's just the UK. I think Buy Now, Pay Later is going to have a bit of a comeuppance, even in markets like Australia and New Zealand, where weirdly it's been the primary means of payment for like 10, 12 years. I remember going to New Zealand on a work trip five or six years ago, maybe five years ago, and speaking to... We were doing some, you know, customer uh, research and speaking to like maybe 18, 19 year olds. And the only way they paid for things was with installment payments. And I was like, sorry, what? You buy like your clothes through this? You buy, you know, whatever? Yeah. like, yeah, absolutely we do. So.
0: so I think that's a really good call out on buy now, pay later. I think the question I have around buy now, pay later is almost like, do you think Square overpaid for afterpay, right? And I think they probably have some sticker shock now in retrospect, uh, looking back on sort of what's happened to the market. But I don't know, it's an interesting question about the enduring appeal of buy now, pay later regardless of sort of how hot the market is. I think that, you know, Square has some interesting strategic adjacencies between their consumer business and their merchant business. I could see Afterpay being a really sort of powerful bridge between the two of those. So I'm guessing that maybe Square still is happy about that acquisition overall, even though they might have overpaid a bit. But what do you think about the prospects of other companies being interested in potentially scooping up some of these buy now pay later businesses? I mean, we saw we saw Goldman Sachs buy Green Sky uh, in the US, which was kind of a mess. And it looks like they may actually end up selling that business back off, which is kind of strange. Um, we've seen a couple of smaller ones get kind of snapped up. Some buy now pay later companies have been eating other ones uh, in an attempt to sort of survive. But, you know, like banks as an example they sort of did some head nods towards buy now, pay later when it was really, really hot. But even then they were kind of suspicious of it as being a category Do they want to get into. Do you see a lot of companies like licking their chops wanting to buy buy now, pay later companies?
1: Not really. No. I mean, I think so. We did see there's one example very recently in the UK, uh, Zopa, which is um, it was a P2P lender and then it pivoted and now it's a bank and it's actually doing really well as a digital mm-hmm. bank. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Pivots can work, guys. Mm-hmm. And it's just acquired a company called Divide Buy. But that, I think, works for them because they don't have any historic like payment capabilities. Like most banks have payments capabilities, whatever they might be. I think the other interesting thing is that when um, we saw banks go into buy now, pay later, a lot of them did it in a very different way. They did it as a much more like traditional line of credit with a hard credit check, Mm -hmm. more more like a loan really than anything else, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the installment payment piece. And I think that speaks to their appetite for risk. um, And I think it also speaks to their awareness of what regulators might say. So I think you know we might see a few more acquisitions like that. I think Klarna has everything it needs right now, and I don't think Klarna's in trouble despite its recent results. I don't think they are. I'm not concerned agree. <laughs> about that. They're going to go, mm-hmm. and they're actually more of a. I think Klarna's pretty much an e-commerce player rather than a finance player now.
0: Yeah, they do. They do marketing for merchants, right? That's basically yeah, the business. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly, and they are a bank as well. So they have a much cheaper source of capital Mm -hmm. than most of their competitors. So I think we're going to see a lot more deaths here. I think in the Bass space, we'll see quite a lot of kind of mergers and acquisitions. I think we're going to see more buy now, pay laters just wither away and die because they can't keep going. The consumer appetite, I think there is a place for buy now, pay later, particularly as these economic crises hit everybody, every country in the world as people are struggling. Mm -hmm. If you can help people afford things they need in a way that doesn't put them into more debt, I can see appeal for buy now, pay later solutions there. But that's like almost going back to the traditional model. Like I need a new fridge. So, and as a buy now, pay later isn't new either. Installment payments aren't new. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a place for them, but I can't see many of many people going down the acquisition route to do that.
0: Yeah, I think that's spot on. And the only thing I'll add is that to your point about the 18, 19 year olds, and this is the only way they know how to pay. We do this every, what, 10, 15 years. You know this from a market research perspective, like we predict the death of the credit card and oh, young people don't like credit cards. And we, in the States, we do this all the time. And the answer always turns out to be people in their late teens, or early twenties don't really like, or really just have a need for credit cards. And then they get to be in their thirties and all of a sudden they love credit cards and credit cards are amazing. And like, there's this resurgence in credit card use by a whole new generation. And so I do think that the sort of demographic predictions around buy now, pay later versus other forms of payment. I think it's interesting that we've been training a new generation of consumers to use this sort of new lending product and sort of change the way they think about these things. But I also think that predicting that that's gonna last and is going to prevent credit cards or other more traditional forms of payment from taking hold with these consumers as they get older is also probably a little overly optimistic. Okay, should we move on to the next round of Jeopardy?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, so now we're gonna talk a little bit about the types of companies that might be interested in making acquisitions. So we've talked about companies that might be for sale. Now let's talk a little bit about potential buyers. Our categories are community banks, large regional banks, the mega banks, big tech companies, later stage fintech companies, the card networks, and legacy tech and infrastructure providers. And Sarah, uh, again, as the reigning champion of our stupid little Jeopardy game, I will let you make the first selection.
1: So, this is a tough one. I'm going to go with big tech companies. Yes. Because. I think like they should be the ones who are like out there hoovering everything up. Mm -hmm. But without turning this into like a reg tech podcast, (laughs) the the regulators are out for them as well. Uh, You know, all the antitrust cases and that's the, uh, you know, the EU commissioner and and then the FTC and the the US have both got the same (laughs) thoughts about Google and Facebook and Amazon and all of those players. So they're going to want to buy but i don't know how much they're going to be able to do i mean all of them have kind of done some acquisitions they've all got financial you know tools in place none of them is a bank but if they wanted to be banks they could be banks and they just don't need to be banks mm-hmm. So I think they're going to have shopping lists, and I think they're definitely going to try. Amazon, I really want to see what they might do in the insure tech space, mm-hmm. um, which is slightly adjacent to what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. But I think insurance, is a, they tried a couple of times, and I don't think they've quite got it right. But I think they're, they're probably going to be looking in that space. And I think they might get away with that a bit more than if they went down the payments route, for example, based on those industries, because insurance is almost a monopoly anyway, not a monopoly, sorry, the way you purchase insurance at the moment is particularly in Europe, a lot of it is through comparison websites, and people go by price only. So if the regulators haven't come for that, I don't feel that they would come for Amazon offering insurance Mm -hmm. and a wider insurance product. And they're already moving in that space. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I big tech's a great pick. And I think that to your point, And maybe you can characterize the difference between the US and the EU in this respect, because I think the EU regulators are even more sort of aggressively anti-monopolistic, which is lovely to see from across the pond. But even in like the US, I think you run into this issue where, to your point about like Amazon, Amazon will say, well, hey, we want to do insurance. We want to buy this company. And they'll have a very strong case for like, well, other companies do this and have sort of a similar arrangement, you know we don't do anything in this space already. There's plenty of competition, blah, 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 And like the facts will sort of be on their side, but regulators will just be sort of at a point where they're like, yeah, we're not gonna let you make any more acquisitions. Like we're just sort of not gonna let you do that. And I kind of get the sense that like more from a sort of overall temperature taking perspective, we've gotten to a point where it's gonna be really hard for any of these big tech companies, just from a, almost like an optics perspective to get away with making substantial acquisitions. And I, I wonder if what we're going to see more is the like Apple credit kudos example, where it's like really small company. It's a little bit about the technology. It's a little bit about the team. It's about importing that expertise in, but like, it's not a huge splashy acquisition. It's not multiple billions of dollars, even though Apple could afford it. And it, it kind of maybe slips under the radar, but allows them to sort of quietly build out their capabilities. I wonder if that's more the model that we'll see in big tech, as opposed to the like Amazon Whole Foods acquisition, which just I don't think we're in an environment where that's palatable anymore.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Although, from my perspective, and I'm sure possibly from other market watchers, how Apple got away with acquiring Credit Kudos is AI. when that came out. Surprising. I was like, no, mm-hmm. how did they get that? Because of the the data play alone. And I was, so yeah, I completely agree with the model, but I do wonder if regulators, I think it's one of those things where I think the regulators didn't quite know what was happening. They didn't understand totally. kind of the impact of it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if they'll get away with it again if they try it, or if the regulators are a bit more savvy now, whether any time Apple wants to acquire X comes up, the regulators are going to go, right, we're going to dedicate proper time to this as opposed to you know, I completely agree with the theory. I just wonder how on it the regulators will be. The other issue is possibly, certainly in Europe, a lot of the regulators are really overstretched right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They don't have enough people to look at everything. Mm -hmm. So they might might get away with it. Big tech companies might get away with a bit more because of that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I do, to your point, like, you know, in the US, Rohit Chopra, who's the director of the CFPB, he's like, almost fanatically anti, like, big tech and, like, the monopolies that have formed in that space. And he he goes out of his way to find opportunities to talk about that. And one thing I've noticed from him in particular on Twitter is he he constantly is, like, praising or sharing news from other regulators and what they're doing. And so you do sort of almost get this sense that there's kind of this, like, dragnet being formed across multiple regulatory bodies where it's like maybe the CFPB doesn't have any grounds to stop Apple acquiring some company that sort of does something in fintech, but they could flag the potential concerns around that to whichever one of their regulatory brethren would be in a position to maybe object to it. So I do think maybe the dragnet is tightening a little bit around that and it'll be more difficult to get those through. But you're right to flag this category as well. I mean, I think... Big tech wants to get more into financial services. I think that's pretty clear. They're looking for ways to sort of diversify their revenue streams. And they still have, despite the downturn in tech stocks, ample cash on hand to make acquisitions, right? And so that's not an issue that they're going to run into as opposed to some of these other areas that are on our list of categories where cash on hand might be the issue.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And there's no way that Google's short of a pound or two or a dollar or two if it wants to go out there and shop. So yeah, to your point, this would be a topic for a whole of the podcast, but to your point about regulators, I think there genuinely is going a lot more global cooperation happening, which is needed. It just has to happen mm-hmm. because companies are not, you know, no company anymore, no financial service company anymore operates in one country or one geography. It's just the way the world is. Yep. So I think that's going to be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to pick a category next. Can we do the big banks, the mega banks? And the reason I want to pick that one is that I've talked about this on previous podcasts, but I kind of feel like the big banks are feeling a little burned out just at this exact moment on fintech acquisitions. Um, I wrote a piece in my newsletter back in 2021, so a, a while ago now, on basically the bank fintech acquisition boom. And at the time, in 2021... Lots of acquisitions were happening. And in particular, there were a lot of larger banks that were doing it. I think Chase was probably the most sort of obvious one. They were responding to Jamie Dimon's... uh, sort of mandate that they not get disrupted by tech and by fintech and by Silicon Valley. And so they were snapping up a lot of fintech companies. I can't remember the total number of acquisitions they made in 2021, but it was it was somewhere between five and 10, I think. So it was a, a decent amount of ones that were getting snapped up. Now, of course, one of the ones that they bought in that shopping spree was Frank, which turned into quite a mess. And I think that that is an interesting challenge for these big banks now is that, you know, JPMorgan Chase ended up with a little bit of egg on its face. Um, It wasn't necessarily thrilled about having made that mistake. And I think that, you know, because the shine has come off of fintech companies, I don't think that these big banks are going to feel the same urgency to go to their shareholders and say, look, we're taking the threat of fintech seriously because fintech looks a little less scary today than it did before. And I think the thing that's motivating a lot of other buyers potentially is the, the discount in price and the ability to scoop these up for a deal the mega banks, I don't think we're ever super worried about price. I don't think that Chase, like I thought it was kind of silly that, you know, Chase seemingly was trying to buy Frank just to get access to its email list. Like that seemed like a bit of an overpay just to get an email list to me. But that I think that also speaks to Chase's budget and what they can do from a monetary perspective when they feel motivated. So I don't think the discount in prices is going to motivate large banks as much as you might think. And I think the Impetus for wanting to buy fintech companies and being able to sort of send that message back to Wall Street it has probably been diminished a little bit. But I don't know. What do you think about that one?
1: Oh, I completely agree. Just as an aside, possibly slightly controversial opinion, mm. I have a huge amount of respect for the founder of Frank for getting away with that.
0: It was brazen. <laughs> I mean, it was brazen. You have to give her that. Yeah.
1: And there's many a founder who said m- many similar things. And, you know, I. I have a lot of respect for her, but that's by the by. I completely agree with you. I think the mega banks that I think the other thing is the mega banks don't really need to, you know, from a from a competitive threat perspective, mm-hmm. but also they've got a lot better at building things. Yes. And they've got a lot better at working out how to work with various suppliers to put together, you know, an equally compelling, you know, product or service mm-hmm. that that many of the FinTechs have. I think the big banks went from this kind of like, we must do it all ourselves to oh my god, we can't do this. To, so, well, oh, actually, we can do this. We've kind of got, got our houses in order mm. and we know how to do it now. So, I think that's another reason that they're going to be slightly shyer. I think a lot of the mega banks also have other problems right now, despite the macroeconomic environment being good for them. If you look at Goldman, Goldman doesn't know what Goldman's doing at the moment. No, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's strategies all over the place. So, I think acquiring fintechs is definitely not something they're going to be looking at or thinking about right now until they work out how to actually operate their core business. So that I think those are two just additional points I'd make is that, you know, actually they don't need to because they can do it themselves and, you know, they have other priorities.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, the progress just again, using Chase as an example, I think the progress they've made in investing in their own technology internally has been very substantial over the last couple of years. And they're going to be able to, I think solve a lot of these challenges that acquisitions might solve otherwise themselves. And I think that'll also take a little bit of the pressure off to to go out and just go on a, a crazy shopping spree. Not that they won't do things opportunistically, but I think you're right. I don't think they'll um, feel the need to just jump into the market and make a splash. I think we have time for one more category in this round. Do you want to pick one more?
1: I think card networks, yes. are possibly an interesting place to play. Um, they've always been like on the lookout for acquisitions. They've also been burned, quite a few of them. But Card Network's relevance is slipping. You know, I know that account-to-account payments hasn't taken off quite in the way that everybody thought it would, but it is getting there. And then you're looking at kind of the, I know you've written about this recently, but like the mobile wallets and the dominance the mobile wallets are starting to have. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to be looking at ways to cut the Card providers out. like They're in the way. They cost people money that doesn't need to be paid. There are other ways around it. So I think to maintain their own relevance, the card networks are definitely going to be looking at acquisitions. And to our point about you know dry powder, these MasterCard Amex, they aren't short of a bob or two. They've got plenty of money lying around. And in fact, they've probably already got shopping lists oh, yeah. of things that they want and companies they want to buy. Not to sound, you know, like a stuck record, the regulators are possibly going to have some words Uh if Visa, you know, Visa, Plaid, et cetera, et cetera. But I think they're definitely going to be on the lookout right now. And I think for things that you might not expect as well. So there's the obvious data plays there's the obvious new payment technologies. But I think, you know, maybe marketing as well, like MarTech might be an area that these companies are looking Uh at, particularly and and maybe even going down the value chain and further into e-commerce. You know, how does Visa compete with Klarna? Well, okay, you know how do to your point? Like you go further down, you go closer to the end customers. Which whether and for Visa, that could be either end: it could be merchants or consumers.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a great call out. The Visa Plaid one is such an interesting inflection point in the recent history of fintech. And you know, to your point, I think at the time, I actually think their chances of getting that one through were higher, except that and this is my sort of conspiracy theory, if you will, I think merchant trade groups sort of quietly behind the scenes worked hard to scuttle that one. And you could sort of see it in some of the Justice Department's talking points about the competitive dynamic and the ecosystem. They were very merchant-centric talking points. And so I do think that that one was sort of this weird like, oh, we had a chance and we just didn't quite get it over the finish line, but it had the sort of side effect of raising the sort of antitrust profile of Visa and MasterCard, I think in a way that probably wasn't super helpful to them. So I will be curious to see if if regulators continue to sort of throw up roadblocks for those companies. I think kind of going back to Apple and Google, you know, maybe the goal is to make acquisitions that have less sort of obvious, scary uh, competitive consequences and maybe try to slip those ones by without regulators really noticing. I do think the point you make about like Visa and how do they compete with Klarna is a really interesting one as well because sort of global trend that I've noticed with the card networks is despite the fact that banks have always been sort of their core customers and in fact, they were spun out of bank owners originally. That's where the card networks all came from. And obviously Amex still is a bank. I've noticed that Visa and MasterCard are increasingly sort of making their banks kind of mad at them and doing things that are to the benefit of the network and to the benefit of merchants and to the benefit of keeping Visa and MasterCard at the forefront of commerce enablement, but are not always great for the issuers. And that could be, you know, the special arrangements that they have with Apple for Apple Pay, could be the things that they're doing around, you know, crypto or around sort of other alternative payment rails. But I do definitely think that there will be more antagonism between issuers and the card networks. And some of that may end up coming from some of these acquisitions that are ones that are, again, good for the future of those networks, but maybe somewhat at competitive odds with the banks that are a part of those networks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the banks don't want to pay the networks any more than the merchants want to pay the networks. So if they can find a way to, to, to you know, to get, get around that, they absolutely will. I just think one example I saw recently of kind of a network acquisition was Amex acquiring Nipendo. Mm. I may be saying that wrong, mm-hmm. but Nipendo. Now I think about it. Well, that's a B2B payments platform, right? That helps businesses make Payments more easily, more efficiently, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's an interesting string to Amex's bow. You know, if you think about what their traditional core customer base has been. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think just, you know, that just adds further proof to the idea or further evidence to the idea that they're going to kind of go stealthily around what you think might be the obvious targets and sort of suddenly turn up somewhere else in an area or an industry that you weren't quite expecting but that when you think about it they've actually got a lot of core competencies that that complement that what area whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, I think that's right and I'm glad you flagged Amex in particular because I think they are one to watch. They've made a couple of smaller acquisitions like you said. I think the last big one they made was Cabbage, which I think ended up being kind of a mess to deal with just based on the timing and sort of what happened in the small business lending market but they've been kind of quiet. They've made a couple small acquisitions. They've also had a lot of like interesting fintech partnerships. And so I do think kind of going to your earlier point where you said some of these companies have a shopping list. Amex strikes me as one that has a very defined shopping list and who knows if the timing and the price will be right. Who knows if regulators are on board with what they want to do, but they strike me as one that probably has a plan that they're waiting to execute.
1: I just really hope that one of their acquisitions is somebody who can make their mobile app better because my <laughs> goodness, Amex's app and Amex's digital, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but the way that you have to interact with Amex online makes me want to bash my head against the table in a, on a regular basis. Absolutely kills me. So, you know, if anybody from Amex is listening, that would be my advice. Think about what you can do with your digital channels and your, you know, customer engagement process, please.
0: (laughs) That is a very like 11FS, we've tried all of these apps and we know what we're talking about type of uh, rant. I love that. (laughs) I just have
1: too many bank accounts now. It's ridiculous. Oh, but
0: trust yeah. me, trust me. I My wife constantly <laughs> gives me a hard time about like, she's like, another debit card arrived for you. I'm like, oh, yay, this one, you know? And she's like, please, please stop. Like, when you die, I'm going to have just a nightmare on my hands to deal with. But that's a future Alex problem, not a present Alex problem. Okay, we have now made it to Final Jeopardy. And Sarah, this won't mean anything to you, but for Final Jeopardy, you get the opportunity to, both answer a question and to give a level of confidence as to your prediction. So in Jeopardy terms, the amount of money that you've earned over the course of the game is how much money you have to risk on this question. And so when I ask this question, both give me your answer and then your level of confidence. And I'm asking a very difficult, kind of out of the box question. So it's okay if your level of confidence is is very small, but um, you ready for final Jeopardy?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. What is your one wacky outside-the-box prediction for a fintech acquisition that we may see? And again, this is not a definitive prediction. This is asking you to go a little bit crazy. But like outside-the-box, what's an interesting one that you kind of are thinking of or has occurred to you that you kind of can't let go of?
1: Okay. Revolut. Yes. Um, And I would say low, possibly low to medium. Okay. All confidence. right. So
0: you're waiting some money, but not all of it, certainly.
1: Yeah. So hear me out. <laughs> I think that Revolut has done an awesome job of acquiring customers and I think it's done an awesome job of pulling together like rebundling if you like mm-hmm. a load of services in one place. But I think it has huge problems under the hood. For example, not filing your accounts, you know, until they're 2 years late and then them containing an auditor's warning yes. is a bit of a red flag. Mm-hmm. Also, the CEO has taken a lot of his own money out of the business in the last funding round. Like he isn't, I mean, he's still hugely invested mm-hmm. in it, obviously, mm-hmm. both you know emotionally and financially. But I think he's might be looking for something else to do. Mm-hmm. I think the regulators' interest in them, you know, they clearly are struggling with compliance. They just can't make the regulators happy in, in quite a few countries. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, maybe there is something there that in the end the team that's in charge just goes this is too hard but we've built a good business here you go you have it mm-hmm. i will say that their valuation their last valuation was one of the more more ridiculous ones <laughs> yeah. that we saw in a sway the ridiculous valuations so mm-hmm. you know there'll be the, the waiting between like holding off to get close to that valuation which i don't believe they would and kind of how quickly do we want or need to get rid of the business but i just think it's they've had enough time and they've not quite got it right mm. so where do they go from here And I think maybe just selling the business to somebody or even, you know, and this is a low confidence rating, but breaking it up into different bits. And selling different bits to different people. But we'll see. The Revolut fans are not huge fans of me anyway. So we'll see what they say to that.
0: Well, at least if they're not fans already, then you're not taking too much of a risk of making anyone uh, more mad than they already are. I I think that's a really good prediction. I think it's interesting. I, I've written about Revolut recently in my newsletters. I won't rehash my thoughts on that. But I think, you know, good acquisition targets, one way to think about it is ones where there's value to be had, but the like controls and ability to run the business are still lacking and kind of can't get put together and so I think I think that's an interesting one to flag. Um okay. I'm going to do mine um and uh, th- this is uh one where I really don't want anyone to be mad because I do like this company a lot and I have a lot of confidence in them but going back to banking as a service and banking as a service platforms I kind of wonder about like SyncTerra as an example. And the reason I think that's potentially interesting is they have done a lot of work to assemble this sort of multi-sided marketplace of like banks and fintech companies. But as we've talked about, it's just a hard business to be in. And I think I don't know how much room there is in the market. I think the sort of energy and enthusiasm that was driving banking as a service is kind of cool as we talked about. But I do think there is sort of interesting, durable value to be created by having networks that connect banks and fintechs and others, right? And to that point, I kind of wonder if an interesting potential acquirer would be someone, in the sort of aggregation consumer business, like a nerd wallet, maybe, or someone like that, where it's like, hey, we already have sort of a network of consumers and financial services providers. What if we sort of built out more of a network so that we had banks and fintech companies and consumers, and the sort of center of it was this really like innovative marketplace of financial products that we could like create and kind of spin off. I think there's more value to be sort of realized out of that and i wonder if sort of an out of the box acquisition in the banking as a service space might be in the cards i would say my my confidence level is still fairly low but that that's my thinking
1: well it's not unheard of if you look at the sofi galileo you know the plays that they've made in that space mm-hmm. like it's not it's not wild
0: <laughs> right right well and, and that's an interesting counter example in a way right because i wrote about sofi not that long ago and The Galileo one was an interesting one because it felt like the strategic adjacencies and the value of like becoming the AWS of fintech, which I think is how they sort of described it probably made more sense on a whiteboard than it's actually making in practice. Like running fundamentally different businesses under the same roof is sort of hard. And I I wonder if, you know, and even like Galileo's other fintech customers now have to reckon with the fact that like SoFi, their competitor is the owner of Galileo. So I think there's some sort of interesting competitive challenges with that one. But yeah, it feels like there has to be some interesting strategic adjacencies with banking as a service. Because I think there's been a lot of value built there, but as we've talked about, I just don't see... I don't see no acquisitions happening in that space. Put it that way.
1: Absolutely. I completely
0: agree. Awesome. Um, Sarah, to end, can you tell us where we can find your work? You mentioned Forbes. Um, I'm assuming you're on Twitter as well. Uh, Where can listeners find you?
1: Yep, absolutely. You can find my writing on Forbes um, and a few other places. <laughs> you type my name into Google, you'll find my blog posts come up quite a lot. I am on Twitter. I haven't abandoned ship yet purely because I tried Mastodon and I didn't understand it. So I've, <laughs> I've stuck with Twitter. I'm on at Sarah Kachansky. It's just my name or one word.
0: Awesome. Not giving up on Elon Musk yet. Okay, that is, uh, that's fair. I'm the same. I'll probably end up going down with the ship. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a ton of fun.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.